This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. I'm Stephen Van Yoder. And I'm Jim Purcell, and we're the co-founders of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. Welcome to today's podcast. Workspace design is central to employee health, and the goal is to create workspaces that support well-being and optimize job performance. This requires a people-first approach to ensure a comprehensively planned design strategy, even before addressing tangible aspects like architecture and furniture. Our guest today, Doug Shapiro, is the Vice President of Research and Insights at Sustainable Office Furniture Manufacturer, OFS. He also hosts the Imagine a Place podcast that explores how design impacts everyday living. Today, Doug will discuss the role of people-first design in physical spaces and how it can improve employee well-being and satisfaction. Doug, thanks for being on our podcast. Thanks for having me. Explain first why I've heard you say, why does place matter? And from there, what is the role of human-centric design in the workplace and why it's an important element? or aspect of well-being. Why place matters is uh, such a big subject, so much so that I've got 100 episodes on it already. <laughs> so, mm. uh, But it, it's impacting us uh, all the time, and it's impacting us uh, very acutely, and it's also impacting us over time. And so we're always understanding that at a deeper level. We're getting more scientific with our understanding, and we're also understanding uh, place's role in culture and even belonging. Uh, and, and our emotional health as well. If you think about people-centered design and human-centered design, it is very much what it sounds like, but it's often missed. You know, when you start a project, you have a budget, you have limited square footage, you have a variety of work objectives. Um, and if you start with those things, you're basically just building a container. And uh, starting with people at the center of your project, if you're, if you're designing a space, can lead to a whole different outcome if you really immerse yourself in the needs and the desires of those people. A human-centric design approach, what do you think the key elements or aspects of that are? What, how does that point to a well-designed workspace? Here's, a, here's an interesting way to think about that or look at this question. If I asked you to describe a normal person, could you even do it? It's so hard because <laughs> we're all so different, right? There is mm -hmm. no such thing as a normal person. Uh, in, in, and we'll look at uh, neurodiversity. So, you know, neurodiversity is something we're understanding more and more. One in seven people are considered to be neurodivergent. So they fall on the end of a, of, of a spectrum. Um, and the, the majority of these people really don't even know that they are neurodiverse. What that automatically leads you to conclude is that if we're designing a place and there's going to be this wide variety of people in it, you need to just inherently move away from the ubiquity of design that we've seen so much of in the past, these kind of rows of sameness. The reality is, is we go throughout our day, we experience so many different things, right? We have people that are going, that are, they're very, we'll just, we'll use sensitivity. We have people that are very hyposensitive where they need stimulation to do their best work. They need a high energy place to be focused and to feel great. And then you have people that are hypersensitive where they need quiet and calm. Otherwise it, it can lead to stress, anxiety, 
you know, the lack of productivity. There's all these things. Uh, so, so right away you see that and you think, okay, well, there's no way I could design uh, a space one way for everybody. And so the variety, the variety that we bring into space and the choices that we enable people to have in space become so key to catering to this, you know, variety of people. Just to sort of encapsulate what you said, making a decision for a large enterprise company, for example, it'll all be this way, making decision coming in and sort of making a universal decision for everybody. It's, it doesn't seem to be that. It seems to be more personalized, uh, more nuanced to the individual characteristics of types of people and how they work well or how they're, how they're going to bring and uh, uh, exemplify their best selves at work. Understanding that there's... There's populations, you know, in every workplace that are more vocal and, uh, you know, may have more influence that is felt. But then there's probably a population that may be just as uh, important to your organization that is not as vocal. Uh, how do we get their input and how do we make sure we create spaces that they can be productive into? It's one thing for an employer to sit down and say, I'm going to get 300 desks and 300 chairs are all going to be the same. We're going to set up cubicles. That has one cost aspect. What are we going to go out now and design each cubicle to fit the needs of the employee? Isn't that going to be, that's going to be a hassle, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think you could ever design, uh, you know, individually, uh, you know, cubicle workstations for each person. If you think about this, think about the most important things that happen in a workplace over the course of a year um, or that happen in a company in the course of a year, those most important activities are generally not uh, someone answering an email at their desk, but it's, it's a meeting, right? Where, where, you know, an idea was shared because someone felt safe mm -hmm. enough to share that idea. Or it was a, a human connection moment where somebody decided to stay at work because they finally felt like they belong and they were able to share a coffee with a coworker in a yep. you know in a really beautiful space. We're kind of understanding that the office is this kind of rich tapestry of of settings, more so than it than it is uh, you know a, a, a farm of cubicles. And I think we've we've already been down that path, but now that work is portable and mobile, and it always has been, but it's taken this sort of pandemic to really shake up our culture and say, mm -hmm. no, we need to think of our office as a tool and rather than a place we have to go. If I'm a, if I'm a carpenter and I have a lot of tools, I'm going to pull out that tool for the, for the job at hand that, that that office fits best to. Uh, and in most cases, many cases, it's not going to be focus work for a lot of people. Now for some that have living situations where they can't focus at home, they need to find that in the office. Well, for others, Coming into the office is going to be much more centered around uh, creating human connection and culture, fostering those sorts of activities. And then, of course, the creativity aspect um, where where you can come to a place that enables you to have more productive meetings through technology and through live interaction with coworkers that you wouldn't really be able to get in other places. Say that, uh, you know, I'm a cold-eyed CFO that is saying, why should I do this? Why should I consider this as a priority? What are the costs associated with doing nothing versus the benefits of investing in this area? What would you say to me? The people are your most important asset. Right now, there are, there are places that you walk into and you're inspired and you feel great. Mm -hmm. And there are places that you walk into 
and you don't, the cost of, of getting it wrong is usually turnover. It can impact culture. Cultures, I, I don't like to think that like, you know, every problem is a nail and design is the hammer, but design is also kind of a reflection of who you are. So you're, you're showing the people in your company that you care about them. Yes. Uh, you're investing in them. If you look away from that, uh, the cue you're sending is, well, you don't really matter. Where does human-centric design meet other aspects of well-being, uh, particularly mental well-being? It's hard to even decouple mental well-being and physical well-being and emotional well-being because they really are so interconnected. Mm -hmm. Some of the things like daylight, right, uh, and the importance of daylight. And in fact, if you have a home office, that's my number one recommendation is, is you have to go out of your way to bring daylight into your day if you're not getting it in your home office. Uh, if you're not getting it at work, you need to do the same thing too. Um, and then there's other things like supporting movement. You know, can you can you create spaces that encourage people to get up and move around? That can be very intentionally designed um, through designers who are well educated in this. And then color, also understanding how color affects us and, and brightness. I think sometimes we get confused uh, between uh, designing for for people and designing for the brand. Um, Sometimes we think that if we can just spread our brand all over the office, people will feel the culture, we'll be immersed in it. And the reality is, um, you know, maybe if, you, if your colors are lime green and black, that might be great for your, your cars that are on the road. But in the office, you know, we need to think about what's good for the people and color plays a role in that too. So a lot of this revolves around being thoughtful about the needs of your employees when you're designing your workplace. Think about them first. Absolutely. The, the other thing I would just sort of uh, underscore, I think, and uh, the default way that maybe a lot of people think about uh, office design and uh, its impact on uh, human health, human well-being is ergonomics. And, and certainly that is very important for backs and wrists and all of that. But you're talking about something else that may be overlooked. It's the mood of the workplace, how uh, and there's science behind, I know, light and uh, depression, lack thereof, light and um, affecting moods. And clearly that affects customer service, uh, you know, how people feel toward the end of the day. But it seems like these are very real considerations that, that do impact uh, how workers perform. I've seen a lot of break rooms that are all set in around the ping pong table. And, uh, and it becomes a little bit of a boys club in there. And, you know, it, it discourages other people from using that important space. So, you know, how, how can we think more broadly about everyone at that work and create spaces where somebody could bring a little bit of themselves into that? I've seen different ways of doing that, like uh, creating, you know, some of these more community-centered spaces, whether it's a cafe at the workplace, uh, ha ha allowing people to bring a picture of their pet you know, and create like something as simple as that, creating a little uh, pet sort of uh, dedication area where people can bring a little bit of their home to work. I think even something that small can, can make a big difference in terms of creating a sense of belonging and creating conversation. Mm -hmm. Doug, you used the term neurodiverse, and uh, I think the other one was neurosensitive or, or neurochallenged. Explain to me what you mean by that. Well, neurodiversity basically just uh, captures the idea that, you know, we, we all fall along a spectrum of, of sensitivity. We all have 
you know, no one being really the normal person that not really existing. And, and there's lots of forms of, of, of neurodiversity. Um, and the one that, you know, that I focused on that was, I think the easiest to get into without getting more scientific was, uh, just sensitivity, people Mm -hmm. that are hypersensitive and hyposensitive, um, and how we, how we think about designing for those people. We can go beyond neurodiversity as well and say, okay, well, there's, there's also, you know, different abled people where you might have, uh, people who, um, have, are blind, right? And how, how do we think about them when we design an office, sure. right? Yep. Because they need to have the same sort of, uh, chance for success and, and, and a great healthy place to work as well. Starting at the beginning. So people are on board with this idea and they have an existing work workplace and workspaces and they're going to assess and do something and take steps toward what you're talking about a human-centric uh, approach to their particular workforce planning and workspace planning what do they do first what do they do next walk us through the process a lot of it depends on uh, your your budget and your willingness to change i i would recommend is to engage an interior designer uh, because you know interior designers especially ones that have that are uh, you know, NCIDQ certified. Okay. They're interior designers that have gone through the level of education that can help you plan for people in the right ways. Um, and they'll be able to kind of assess your needs. Um, they have tools and and many have different approaches, but they have tools that will help you, um, gather the insights of the people around you. Um, they can observe, and create a space that responds to what you're, you know, what, what those people can use. But if you didn't have that budget, right, there's still low hanging fruit out there that you can do. I mean, we did talk about daylight. Another one is biophilia, bringing visible nature into your work environment, whether it's your home office or your, or, or, or a workplace has tremendous impacts. It, it's known to actually boost creativity, right? By, by when you see visible nature, it also has a calming effect uh, that can reduce stress. Uh, this has been scientifically proven as well. So um, bringing plant life into a space, even pictures of plant life are known to do this as well. So any way we can bring biophilia into our space and kind of reconnect people with nature uh, is just simple low-hanging fruit. Another way, another low-hanging fruit is honestly healthy choices. Uh, if you've got vending machines and you've got food in your cafe and sodas, you know how you know getting rid of sugars and and some of the the bad foods for us and the processed foods can make a big difference as well. And offering fruit and from a design perspective, where you put those, so make the healthy foods easy to grab and make the you know, if if you just can't get rid of that Mountain Dew, well, you know, put it, put it, put that vending machine way off in the corner, make it harder to find. Uh, so there's like small design elements like that that can even inspire a healthier place. And what we found is, if you can create this, these sorts of habits at work, people will take them home, and it becomes part of their life as well. Now, uh, what role does uh, employee input? having all this and and uh, I'll even say assessment so I'm, I'm thinking for example um, how do employees feel about their current workspace 
Um, how does their body feel with it? Meaning, you know, um, am I suffering from back problems? Uh, do I sense ergonomic problems coming from mouse usage? Proper desk design, that'd be clearly the physical aspect. But then the, the other things have to do with mood and well-being. But how do you get employees' input on this so it's informing and you're not dropping, you know, the plan onto them? Yes, em employee input is is a tricky thing because you absolutely want to involve the people you're designing for. Uh, and there's ways uh, there's ways we can do it. We actually have something called a, a human needs matrix where it shows you um, the different activities you might do in a day, right? Whether you, you're restoring, you're connecting, you're focusing, right? Um, and then it also shows you the, the, the group sizes that you do it in. So that's kind of one little matrix way where you can kind of do a heat chart of how you spend your day. And that would help you do your planning. Um, so there's some activity-based planning things um, and, and tools we have, but the more subjective things about mood and feel, sometimes those are hard to get to. Why don't you give us a, your thoughts about the pandemic related working at home, coming back to the office and how do we make it more enticing? Sure. Well, I, I, I heard a great comparison where the office is like the cinema where it was like, okay, so why would I go to the cinema when I can just watch movies at home? Right. And they're so good. And the screens are 70 inches now, you know. Um, so the, the office is a bit of a consumer product. So the way people come to the cinema is, you know, they deliver a technology experience you can't get anywhere else. They deliver a cultural experience you can't get anybody else. You get to watch a movie with people, which has kind of a certain vibe to it. Right. A certain energy to it. So um, I, I do see the the office. Um, in a little bit, you know, almost like it's a consumer product where um, people have a choice to come in and it's almost, it goes back to being that tool. If they, if they understand that this is a tool I have and when I have a certain problem, I need to pull that tool out. I think that's the way to think about the office. And as long as that's understood and that shows up in the, in the physical execution of that space people will use that office but if if the office of tomorrow looks like the office from 2010 where it's just like you know the rows of cubes uh, little places for people to hide and work it won't you know it'll never meet the needs of that workforce and, and people won't choose to come back i think it's not necessarily uh you know how do we get people back i think it's more about you know, how do we give the people, you know, a tapestry of environments that allow them to thrive and do their best work? The office is one of those places. And to me, it's the place that's going to bring people together and give them a sense of human connection, give them a sense of energy and uh, creative outlets that they can't get at home. And it's also going to be a place where you can work together uh, more productively. Uh, tell us about your company OFS and how it helps employers apply what we've talked about that uh, talked about here today. And um, if you care to, um, you know, mention any particular company is a good example of your approach. Uh, be great to hear. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking that. Um, so OFS, uh, we we make and design office furniture, uh, and we do that for. 
for healthcare settings. We do that for uh, higher ed settings. We also do it uh, for workplace, which is really where we spend a large chunk of our effort. In in doing that, you know, we're we're always thinking ahead. So it takes time to launch a product, and um, it takes time for that product to kind of enter the workplace and then begin use. So we're always three, four years out in our thinking. You know, the pandemic obviously is a surprise and was a surprise to everybody. But the way that we're working, um, the what sped up through the pandemic was not a surprise to most of us in the office furniture world. Um, We'd been designing for settings, designing for collaboration, designing for um, this more human-centered approach for quite some time. Um, So inside our collection, you'll find find literally... Soft, what we call soft, soft architecture, furniture solutions to creating spaces, rooms. And then we also have everything from that down to the task chairs. Um, and it's all, uh, it's all designed kind of with this human-centered approach. So uh, we design spaces from that approach. But then uh, the products that we put into those spaces need the same sort of thinking. So how is the human really going to experience this product? And how can we design something that supports the objectives of a designer who's thinking about that human first. And if someone wants to contact you after listening to this, what is the best way to contact you? Well, you can find me personally on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I do, I do a lot of uh, posting on LinkedIn. So feel free to DM me directly. I also host a podcast called Imagine a Place, as you mentioned. Um, so you can reach out through that channel as well. Um, and then if you're interested in connecting with OFS, it's OFS.com. And it's pretty straightforward from there. And uh, Very good. Yeah, okay. thank you. Thanks for your time, guys. All right. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.